Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. What was that topwater John Mikey was throwing over at FDR Park for them largemouth John? Asked to see his dad's old musky gun. How else would you dispatch a muskie before bringing it in the boat? If you could fish with any Muppet, which one would it be? The guy that lives in the trash can. Example, where's Puck? Remember Puck from the real world? Whatever happened to Puck? Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that once got booted off an episode of MTV's Lip Service for not knowing the words to How Do You Talk to an Angel? I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and what... Wasn't that like the theme song to Dawson's Creek? No, no, it was not. And you know what, dude? You know it wasn't. You know <laughs> right. that. You know that. Your little uh, snide ass rhetorical question there is it's actually more on point than you realize, though, because the guy who sang How Do You Talk to an Angel actually did play Tori Spelling's boyfriend on Beverly Hills 90210. Really? How about, yeah, how about that? You were, dude, you're like a, a, a <laughs> 90s media savant. I, I hate that I know that, but I do. <laughs> if we ever get to play bar trivia again, I'm on your team. I'm calling dibs. We're on the oh, same yeah. team. You're uh, in. But, and you're right. That was a snide <laughs> comment, and I was being a jerk. But uh, to get back to where I think you were trying to lead us in this conversation, yes, I do remember MTV's lip service. And and if memory serves, it was a cringeworthy mm-hmm. lip syncing competition judged by B-list celebrities. Is yes. that right? Exactly. And I watched that show religiously back in the day. And I feel like in, in that era, in the, in the early to mid nineties, you'd come home from school and that was always what was on. Like, like if you just mm-hmm. put on MTV in the afternoon, that's what was on. And I watched it like crazy. It was, um, what's her? Spinderella was the DJ. Spinderella, salt and Pepper. So yeah. From Salt and Pepper. Yeah. Yeah. It was the bomb because she'd throw Jane's addiction at some sorority girl, like, and it was glorious. Because the same girl, she'd be all over that Ace of Base track, you know, like really feeling herself and grooving. But then, like Perry Farrell comes in, and it's instant train wreck. Yeah. Just it just falls apart. And then these poor these poor people would have to have their their performance judged by like Gilbert Godfrey. On body mechanics, Gilbert, how did they move for you? They they move well. I I 
movement. What'd you give him, man? I gave him a seven. They gave him a seven. Well. That's a good score. How deep a lip service rabbit hole did you did you fall <laughs> to do this bit, man? It was large. It was large and deep. It was large. And to be honest, <laughs> I, I'm gonna tell you what, man. It wasn't even the lip service footage that that like took me back and tickled me most. But the commercials in the episodes I watched, like some of them had the old commercials still mm-hmm. in there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, li- listen to this. You, do you remember Cinnaburst gum? These dots indicate an explosive personality. Cinnaburst with flavor crystals yes. may not be suitable for adults. Flavor crystals. Yes. Oh, I had completely <laughs> blocked those from my memory, I think. Or I don't know, maybe maybe whatever toxic chemicals those were made out right. of are actually responsible for my lack of short term memory. I don't know, I don't know, but they, they definitely couldn't have been good for me. No, probably they had not. To be bad. Uh, this might also be a rhetorical question. I don't, what happened to that dude who hosted lip service? Oh, I don't even know his name. Who knows? I don't. I don't, I don't he. Who knows? I don't I, know. It's John something. I think I don't know. John J. It was definitely a J word. Uh, and I mean, there's that guy. I feel like what if there I feel like there's a whole host of twenty somethings who thought mm-hmm. that getting on MTV was gonna like jumpstart their careers. Oh, and yeah. now I have no idea what happened to them. Uh <laughs> where's example, where's Puck? Remember Puck from the real world? <laughs> Whatever happened to Puck? Holy shit. Oh Puck. Puck was man, Puck was the best. He was terrible. Thank you for bring oh my god, I forgot about Puck. <laughs> Though I will say Puck, if you're listening, like we'd love to have you on, Puck. And normally, like we say stuff like that, and it's a joke because these people—it's not going to happen. These people aren't, aren't going to come on our show. But it's not outside the realm of possibility. We may actually hear from Puck because I'm assuming at this point his career as a bike messenger has dried up. Yeah, and he's, he's pro- Puck's probably not doing a whole lot these days. I I, I really hope we don't hear from him. I'll just say, <laughs> come that. on. I'm, I, I yeah no I get it you you think it would be funny I'm I'm I would vote nay on Puck and I'm not that worried about it <laughs> if I'm being honest. Uh, I'm pretty sure Puck didn't take up fishing. All right. No. Moving on. That's that's probably enough 90s pop culture for one intro. Let's get into uh Maybe. let's get into <laughs> our real world here. Ah. This 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 real world. Uh we're kicking things off this week with a badass salty East Coast fly fishing guide who's probably too young to have caught any of those references, but that's all right. We like her anyway. Uh in this week's covering water segment, we're making like the pilots and wings. A little more for you. But instead of trying to fly to Nantucket, we're landing on Martha's Vineyard to rapid-fire idiotic questions at Captain Abby Schuster. I'm going in. Cover me, Porkins. I can hold it. Pull up! No, I'm all right. Joining us today, we have Massachusetts-based guide, outfitter, and shop owner... Captain Abby Schuster. What's going on, Abby? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Even if you're on, on the wrong side of the country, I still, I still appreciate <laughs> Incorrect. you Incorrect. She's on my side of the country. <laughs> there exactly. you go. Okay. The right coast, officially. The right coast. <laughs> so, so as I, was, as I was trying to prepare for this, like I was, I, was, I was working on figuring out how to somehow quickly sum up the trajectory of your career, and I'm not sure if I got it right. You were born out east... And then you came to Montana for college and started guiding around Missoula. Yep. Then, then you went over and started guiding in Washington and Alaska. And yep. then you went back east to start up your, your outfitting operations. Is, is that all correct? Yep, that's right. 
And is that is that because you finally couldn't stand not having a good piece of pizza anymore? <laughs> Actually, it was part of it. See? Call that right. is right. part of it. You probably pick it up on something that you may or may not know, and which is that Joe and I are perpetually locked in this East versus West feud. And uh, and it's the fact that you one. went back there kind of tells me that you're on his side. So I'm t- I'm holding that against you a little bit, but I'll get it over it. Took a few tries, and finally I said I could be an East Coaster again. New Englanders mm. are hardy people. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not arguing that. I just you know I'm partial to Montana myself. Part of my heart's always there. Fair enough. I'm, I'm going to leave that alone because we don't need to. We don't need to dive into that whole East West thing. I think that's been covered more than enough. Um, another thing I found out about you: you are the only charter captain that I know who's also a yoga instructor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Surprise. just real quick, real quick. Like I'm very familiar with the process of of getting licensed as a captain because because I've done it. But is there is there like a formal process for? for getting oneself recognized as a yoga instructor? Or is it just like yes, being a professional fly fishing guide on Instagram? <laughs> okay. So what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be, you can't just like, I can't just tomorrow call myself a yoga instructor. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not either. <laughs> no offense. Um, no, you have to do like 200 hours of school or 500 hours of school. And then you're 200 hour teacher or 500 hour teacher. And so it's usually like mine was nine months. For of like twice a month meeting for the whole weekend. So it's harder than becoming a captain is what you're saying. It's longer, but the tests way easier. <laughs> captain tests are hard. They're really hard. I know. Hard. I was surprised how hard they were. I could spend too much time on this, but I feel like I feel like I'm going to save my stupid questions for the actual reason you're here. Uh, we asked you onto the show today to take part in covering water, which is the rapid fire interview segment we do instead of bothering to conduct proper interviews. And here's how it works. Joe's going to put two minutes on the clock and then he and I are going to rapid fire questions at you. Your goal is to get through as many as possible in those two minutes, which means you can't think about your answers. You just got to blurt out whatever comes to your head. Okay. All right. But in the spirit of fairness, after those two minutes are up, we will give you one minute to expand and elaborate on whichever answer you think was most interesting or, or potentially damaging to your career. You pick the career ender, and you can you have one minute to. <laughs> yeah. that's People love this. All our guests are like, "What a great segment!" <laughs> All right, you ready to go? Yep. All right, two minutes starts now. Would doing more yoga make me a less shitty spay caster? <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's the most painful spot you've ever been hooked? My stomach. <laughs> Your least yeah. least favorite fish to target? Um, sea robin. Ah, interesting one. Which beer is honestly, truly better, Bad Martha or Cisco? Cisco. Whoa, that's the Nantucket beer. Go ahead. I know, that's bad. I should explain that one. <laughs> Rocky Mountain oysters or whole belly clams? Whole belly clams. <laughs> <laughs> what gets you more excited, the worm hatch or the squid run? Squid. Oh. Which fish are stupider? Stripers busting a bait pile or cutthroats chowing on caddis? Cutthroat. The Cape Cod Canal. I love it or screw that shit show. That show. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> Who's the greatest angler of all time? Oh, my grandmother is pretty good. Oh, that's a great Excellent. answer. Excellent. Great answer. Beautiful. The best fish to sight cast to in the entire world is? Straight bass. Okay. 
Iyengar or Vinyasa? <laughs> so wow, Vinyasa. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't have anything there. The movie you quote most often is. I'm really bad at quoting movies. Okay. So not sure. really. The species you've never caught that's highest on your list. Peacock bass. Ooh, okay. Yeah, Clouds be. or minnows, chartreuse over white or pink over white if you could only use one for the rest of your life? Pink, favorite color. Excellent. Poppers or stick baits? Poppers. If you could fish with any Muppet, which one would it be? Oh, that's a good one. Maybe the guy that lives in the trash can. Is that a Muppet? No, that's Oscar. That's We're Sesame out of time. But, that's, <laughs> but it's a great <laughs> color. It's a perfect color for it. <laughs> We'll have to get clarification on whether Oscar the Grouch is a Muppet. I don't think so. I don't think so either. He looks like that. <laughs> that was a fun one. All right. That was. So I will. I am now putting one minute on the clock, and you can you can elaborate, Abby, on any one of those answers that you would like. Your time starts now. Okay. The beer question, I feel like I have to go back to that because we have this little rival between, you know, Nantucket. And Martha's Vineyard. I like Martha's. I like bad Martha's. It's, you know, my people. And, but I just like the taste of Cisco better, I have to say. I really do. Man, you picked the one that is like saving your local street cred. I Literally, appreciate that. Literally, though, I would be the shop would not run another year. <laughs> <laughs> and we're right down the road. So I have to protect my back here. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I wish I had anything to say about this because I don't know either of those beers or anything about this particular If we ever fish together, And look, full disclosure, when I was coming up with questions, I wanted to come up with some fun ones. So I reached out to uh, a buddy of mine who's up there who works for On the Water, and I was like, dude, what's a good beer question for Abby? And he's like, she's on the vineyard, right? And he's like, yeah, so Bad Martha or Cisco, that's the two rival, that's the two rival beers. Yeah, they do. Ri- the island's rival. You should see it. It's crazy. I've never been to Nantucket, only Martha's Vineyard, but that was for a Jaws tour, sadly, not to fish. And that uh, that's dorky, and I, I'm sorry I said it, but that's what I've been there for. I've only been to Nantucket <laughs> one, no, two, I fish around there all the time, mm-hmm. but like actually step foot on the island twice in my life. Yet they have the better <laughs> local brew. Yeah, I know. I stop in, get a beer, hang out. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we've thrown a regional gauntlet here on Bent, and uh, and this will only be settled with the with the fishing throwdown. Hopefully, Joe can get up there and do that and help you out with that. Abby, thanks for coming. We really appreciate having you. Thank you so much. I'll tell you what, man. I got such a kick out of Abby using her one minute of clarification time to explain why the rival island's microbrew is better than her island's microbrew. Yes, like that Good was choice. gutsy if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Like to to just just you know she just went for it and was honest. But I admire her honesty so much, and I I hope nobody's you know like burning cases of Cisco on the steps at the shop right now. Uh, I feel terrible. I, I hope that's not the case either. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna think better of humanity and and guess everyone took it in stride. Uh, and you know I I think that that's part of why I and other people like Abby. She's yeah she's straight up man. She calls it like she sees it. Yeah yeah. And I don't know anything about that fishery out there. So I, I, I don't know what you guys were talking about with the Cape Cod Canal, but after oh. she outed it as a shit show, I want to know more. <laughs> I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we could spend hours picking that apart. And for the record, I've never actually fished there, but I want to because I enjoy a good shit show. You know, uh-huh. sometimes, like it's just part of the Northeast scene. But 
basically it's shoulder to shoulder dudes in season. And like many places in the Northeast, you know, it gets crowded and some people consider catching a big striper. They're kind of half a victory, you know, because mm-hmm. it's real easy access and the fish are kind of corralled and, and somebody with relatively little knowledge can, can stick a 40 pounder there, just like walk up in sweatpants and do it. Mm-hmm. But then it's that argument of, of does that fish count as much as the 40, you know, a guy caught by putting on a wetsuit and swimming to a rock in the middle of the night after months of noting the tides and following the migration. So it's kind of viewed as like the easy place to get your big bass, but I still want to fish there. So Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can I can weigh on that if we're talking about, you know, big trout in a spring creek versus land of the giants out here. I could I could talk about that, but I'm I'm I don't know. I if if we're if you're asking me the question, does that count? I don't know. I think the guy doing the crazy stuff in the middle of the night counts more. I would I would pick, yeah. pick that one as more yeah. valid. You know, I, I definitely, I mean, in my youth around here, I, I almost killed myself a couple times just trying to catch 20 inch trout. I, I have right. no idea what I would have done if I had access to 40 pound stripers. Like, I don't know. I would have done Stop something trout even stupider. Fishing, like I did I for know. a time when I discovered stripers. <laughs> yeah. And like in the past, when we've been t- swapping fishing stories, you've told me about folks, you know, who get like fully suited up in heavy oh, yeah. wetsuits and swim rough seas at night deep water rocks and they like they tow all their gear behind them right uh-huh yeah just, or, just or to they get have a just shot waterproof stuff like you know that's what all those van stalls are for they're waterproof uh-huh. they just lash it to themselves and kick backwards man none for me thanks but i know the guys who do this i'm intrigued by that <laughs> like yeah that is one of and we can add it to a whole list of, of things in the northeast that i just don't know much about but i, I want to know more about it like i'm 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 interested in that yeah. and as we do so often we get on these topics about Western stuff and Northeastern stuff. And, and by my request this week, Joe is going <laughs> to teach us a lot more about a very niche Northeast word with hip hop roots in the weekly word. Webster's dictionary defines fish as this week's word is John. That's J A W N. And it's a word that really has nothing to do with fishing, but at the same time could technically have everything to do with fishing. And the only reason I'm even doing this, John, is because I said the word John in another episode. And Miles, being the wordsmith that he is, was so intrigued by my John, he had to know more about the John. John is a slang term that originated in Philadelphia, at least mostly, and we'll get to that. And is used so much, even in Philly's surrounding PA and New Jersey suburbs, that it often appears in advertising. McDonald's even got down on that John with billboards featuring nothing but a sausage McMuffin and the words, that's my John. Visit Philly.com's billboards read, there's no John like home, and vitamin water plastered the area with billboards that said vitamins, electrolytes, get that John. So what is this John? Well, according to that Oxford Dictionary John, John refers to a thing, place, person, or event that one need not or cannot give a specific name to. So basically, John can be used to replace absolutely any noun, anyone at all, in its singular or plural form. As an example, I might say, what was that topwater John Mikey was throwing over at FDR Park for them largemouth John? Or, upon seeing a giant flathead catfish swimming along the bank of the Schuylkill River, I might say, yo, that's the biggest John I ever seen in here. Followed by, yo, I'm retying my John with 50 pound because that 30 pound John ain't going to be strong enough if I hook that John. Interestingly, John can be pluralized with or without an S. Saying, let me get one of them Johns when asking a buddy for a fresh minnow out of the bucket is acceptable. But more commonly, John is used to refer to multiple things minus the S. 
As an example, when asking a friend where he acquired multiple new striper plugs, you'd say, where'd you get them, John? You might also say, I want to get into fly fishing, but there's so much John to buy. Theories abound about John and where it came from. In fact, John is such an intriguing word because it can be used in so many ways that linguists have spent years studying this John and tracing its origins. All signs point to John being a derivative of joint. Joint, as a slang term, rose in popularity in the American South around the time of emancipation. Bars and clubs that served as safe havens for black Americans were called juke joints. This eventually expanded into the labeling of somewhat sketchy places as joints, which even further down the line translated to any place you considered kind of underground, such as that little pizza joint or burger joint you think only you and your boys know about, even though that John is all over Yelp. But some smart John believed John was born in Philly in 1981 specifically. That year, hip-hop group Funky 4 Plus One had a popular song called That's the Joint. And it was one of the earliest recorded hip-hop tracks where the word joint was used as a positive term to refer to something good or something that you like. Linguists say because the singers slightly drew out the vowels in the word joint and didn't accentuate the T, Philadelphians either heard it as John or sang it as John, ultimately solidifying the future of that John. Take a listen. Well, we just can't miss. We just can't miss. Well, we just can't miss. With a beat like this. Did you hear it? Let's listen one more time. So what's the deal? Sugar Hill. So what's the deal? Sugar Hill. That's the Whether you heard Joint or John, the mere mention of this song being the origin of John infuriates many Philadelphians. Why? Because Funky 4 plus 1 was from the Bronx. And even though most linguists agree John technically came from Joint, which got popularized as a catch-all in New York hip-hop culture, Philly people just don't want to hear that John. That John means too much to them. Now, if you're one of them John that gets all mad about John coming from them New York John, here's what I suggest. Head out to the garage and grab your John and head down to that John where you caught all them John last season. Cast out a live John under a bobber, or maybe throw one of them Panther Martin Johns and just relax. You got other John to worry about. No matter where that John came from, it's a Philly John now. Quick follow-up. Do you think that Funky 4 Plus 1, that, that particular track, was ever on lip service? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, it would have been a death sentence. It would have been these those those nineties kids would have had no idea. No idea. And also I think it's funny because that song is from that era in hip hop. You know, like when one track was was twenty five minutes long and like chronicled an entire week in somebody's life, you know? My alarm went off at eight AM. It was Tuesday. I was tired. <laughs> so I hit the snooze button, and eight minutes later, my alarm went off again. Or they just get on the thing that's like, we're going to rock this beat, going to rock this beat, we're going to rock this, and it would go on for five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But I am, <laughs> yeah, Sugar Hill. It's, it's their style, no doubt. Yep. But I, I am curious, though, like, listening to that, did you hear Joint or John? Uh, okay, so the first clip, I heard Joint. Mm-hmm. But the second clip, I heard John. Yeah. So I think I think it messes you can, with you. Like you can I think hear you it. can take that one either way, to be honest with you, because because there are different parts of the song that you sampled there. And and in the first one, it, it to me is clearly joint. And the second one, I, I hear the John. But before we get too far away from it, I really did love everything about that weekly word. I I felt like you completely crushed that one and took it Thanks, took it in a direction I didn't think was gonna go, and I, I very deeply enjoyed it. It was a fun one, for sure. Yeah. And it hit on a lot of levels for me personally. 
and and you got me thinking like as i was listening to that you got me thinking about how how influential that particular 1980 funky four plus one track was mm-hmm. i mean and, and then i started thinking about all of its different references in hip-hop right you, you got this one from 89 Yeah, man. Beasties for the win on that one. Fantastic track. Fantastic yeah. album. If you don't know Paul's Boutique, you gotta. And then there's this other one. Almost 10 years later, this one's from 98. Yeah, that's the joint. That's the joint. That's the jam. Turn that shit up. Play it again. That's the joint. Now, who's that? I don't know that. that okay, that was, that was Black Eyed Peas back when Black Eyed Peas did uh. hip-hop instead of pop. Back before Fergie was in it, and they were like they were an actual legitimate hip-hop gotcha. trio. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I, I could go, I could go sure. on and on with this I'm for certain. a very long time. <laughs> uh, and uh, we won't. I'll leave it at those two because I think they're good ones. Uh, but we've got our own little linguistics rap battle to deal with here. It's time for that fish news, John. Fish news. That escalated quickly. All right. Before we get in the news here, I, I got a shout out this week. Have to shout out. Listener Dustin Dugstad or Dugstad yeah. again again with the names don't know not really sure uh, but he sent us a, a video clip right and I, I know you've seen it I have but before you get into it though the first time he sent it to us there was no information no context it was just this right. really weird clip that I, I looked at and I went I don't know what's happening here but I want to know please tell me the story <laughs> well now so now yeah so he came he came through with the follow-up and now we know and I, i've never seen anything like it right and it almost makes me question how badly i actually want to fish in new zealand now i've always <laughs> sort of dreamed of it and now i'm not so sure so we'll do the short version because we got a lot to get through today but um in, the, in this clip dustin's fishing this this trout river in new zealand and he had caught himself like a really nice big rainbow that he apparently decided he was going to take home for dinner so he bonked the fish but then what he does is he props his cell phone up on a rock so he can get a little selfie video of his big rainbow. And then he says while he was shooting that video, he realized the trout still had a little life left in it. So he moved off camera, he bonked it again, and then he reaches down to wash the slime and blood off his hands. Now remember, his camera is still rolling, propped on the rock. So it's like getting him in the corner of the frame. And all of a sudden, this giant, like, three four foot eel latches onto his middle finger and he rips it out of the water still still holding onto his hand and just (laughs) flings this giant eel just flings it and his reaction is priceless okay but he he had said in the email after the fact you don't see this but while he's examining his bloody chewed up finger he looks down he notices there are there are four more of these giant eels at his feet just poised and staring at him, ready to grab either a piece of trout meat or, or or his hand, I guess. And I posted this on my Instagram earlier this week, but I'll drop it in my story again today. But it's creepy, and it leaves me like clutching the hand a bit. Yeah. Because while I'm fascinated by eels, I don't love the like I they creep me out when I catch them. Big congers, I don't like it. I don't They're like creepy. Them. They're creepy, and uh, I have fished that river that Dustin was on actually. And, and I will, I can attest to the fact that there are a lot of those freshwater eels swimming around in, yeah. in New Zealand waters. Like they're everywhere. But you told and me you don't, you don't catch them on flies, but like any, any drop of blood, any chunk of meat, like I never fished it. bait. So right. I, I would imagine that if you fish bait, you get, you get a lot of eels, but, uh, 
on artificials, I never had any any eel action other than just seeing them around. They're yeah. everywhere, and they're yeah. definitely creepy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Super creepy video. But Dustin, thank you for that, man. Like I got a, I got a, I don't know if I'd say pleasure out of it, but it was, it was fascinating <laughs> to watch. And and thank you for giving us the story so that we knew what the hell was going on because that's one of those amazing moments you catch on camera that you can never yep. recreate. Yep. All right. So as uh, as you all know, Fish News is a competition, and normally we have no idea what stories the other ones bring, but it's a little different this week because Joe knows yeah. what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. I'm yeah, going to talk about yeah. something that, that that we all know about here. Um, but I don't know what Joe's going to talk about, so there's at least some mystery still involved. And at the end of it, our, our phenomenal and amazing <laughs> audio engineer, Phil, is going to choose a winner and crown the champion of the week. And uh, Joe, you're leading us off. So what do you got, man? I am. I am. I'm leading us off. And I'm sure uh, some of you recall the news story I did just last week, I believe, about uh, a woman in Malaysia eating her pet carp. Got a little mm-hmm. little traction on the interwebs. Um, and she turned them into a nice soup. And in that report, we, we touched on how it's understood that many people in many cultures love eating carp. But by and large, we Americans don't. We don't eat the carp. In fact, like in the culinary world, um, people would go as far as calling carp a four-letter word which has been a really massive problem when it comes to getting people to eat invasive Asian carp, right? And um, even though they're not they're not the same species as common carp, they're not grubbing the bottom and the mud in the park pond, you know, they feed differently and they, they taste differently. And you and I can vouch for that and we don't need to harp on it, but a, a piece of deep fried Asian carp is delicious and mild and not fishy at all. I've eaten True. it at your house. We've Truth. talked about yep. it before. Still, still, they're called carp, which sours a lot of people from having any interest in eating them. Well, uh, per a recent story in USA Today, a full-on media blitz is coming later this year Okay, to change the consumer's perception of the fish, and also, more importantly, change its name. Okay, so now from for, this is from the article. The proposed new name for the fish is being kept tightly under wraps for a big rollout in June, prior to the Boston Seafood Show in mid-July. But other aspects of the what they're calling the Perfect Catch campaign will point out that invasive. Asian carp species, being silvers, big heads, grass carp, and black carp, are flaky, tasty, organic, sustainable, low in mercury, and rich in protein and omega-3 fatty acids. So what's happening here is the foodies are are kind of pulling another fast one, right? And in case yep. you didn't know, this has been done before. I'm this sure many of new. you have, no, I'm sure many of you have heard of orange ruffy, right? They're a deep dwelling saltwater fish, but orange ruffy is not their real name. Their their, their technical name is <laughs> slimehead. They're called slimeheads. Um, and in who the late wants 70s, to eat that? nobody wants to eat a slimehead. Uh, but in the late 70s, a decision was made to rebrand those fish so people would buy and eat them. And they did. And the world ate so much orange ruffy that in 2010, Greenpeace added them to their red list of unsustainable fisheries. Um, I mean, the biggest ruse of them all is Chilean sea bass. Yeah. Their, their real name is Patagonian toothfish, but nobody's paying 80 bucks for a plate of Patagonian toothfish at the country club. Right. And uh, but that name point blank was dreamed up by a seafood wholesaler in, in 1977 looking to increase his profits and boy did he and we don't have time to go into all the history and drama of, of commercial tooth fishing but if you're interested uh, grab a copy of a book called Hooked Pirates Poaching and the Perfect Fish by G. Bruce Necht I don't know if you've ever read that it, it, it's a it's a great several book. people several people after uh, we I talked about the the tooth fish last week and they're 
blood being used to melt. Yeah, yeah. several people melt the, melt melt snow. Several people wrote me and said I should read that book. I haven't read it, but it's one one we might have to cover. It's been a lot of years. I, I should reread it, but I remember it's a very very good book, very detailed. Anyway, there's not much more to say about the carp story, right? Because it's all a big secret. Like they're unveiling the new name, like like it's like a New Year's Eve ball drop. Yet I fear that. When it does finally light up, like there will just be the deflated sound of one party blower. You know, like the effect. Yeah, like the effect Phil uses in fish news. Phil, yeah. can you remind us? <laughs> Thank you, Phil. But I hope it works. I really do. I'm just skeptical because people have tried this with dogfish, sea robins, skates, all kinds of things, like all these different efforts to get people really excited about eating them and buying them. And it, it really hasn't worked on a grand scale, but it does leave me speculating, how can you not, about those names? Oh, that's now, the fun part about this. Now, I, I, do you have a couple in mind? Because I have a couple in mind. Of course I do. All right. Do you want to go first or second? I mean, I only have one that I think is valid, and it's not really funny. I just think it would work. I think you just need to call it Silver Cod. So, okay. Interesting. If you, if you, if you call cod. anything Cod, people are going to buy it, <laughs> and they're going to okay. eat the hell out of it. I had a little bit more fun with it. And the way I look at it is it, it all depends on the branding, right? If if you want it to be mostly consumed at state fairs as like fish and chips, deep fried, uh-huh. crispy, crispy brown, if that's sort of the, the motif we're gonna get people excited about, I was I was I would say Kentucky cod mm, was one of my that's a good one. Okay. But now if you wanna if you wanna glitz it up and make it fancy and have it in a raspberry reduction, I came up with Peori and Hake or <laughs> my favorite Davenport Soul. Oh, Davenport Souls, pretty That's clever. Good, dude. That's clever. I like it. You know, so we'll see uh, what they what they rename the the Asian carp up there in uh, in Boston this summer. But kidding aside, this is a fun little story. If you have the chance to consume some, whether you catch it or somebody offers you some, you'll be shocked. It is don't very, say no. Very good. Don't turn yeah, it down. Don't say no. I'm telling exactly. you, exactly. Really exactly. good. We've really done a good job, and I got to give you credit for most of this. But keeping this, it's been a fun, light-hearted episode so far. Everything's been been kind of cheeky gonna, and, and you're enjoyable. Gonna nose, you're going to nosedive at it. I am going bit, to completely <laughs> ruin this vibe right now. Uh, it's got to be done, though. It's got to be because, done. Because a lot, yeah, of, there's, lot there's of emails. An, there's an elephant in the room that has to be discussed. Um, and I'm only gonna I'm only gonna do one story today because because it's kind of long. Yeah. So last week, the state of Wisconsin's head sturgeon biologist, Ryan Koenig, was charged with obstruction in a case that alleges he and his staff illegally transferred lake sturgeon eggs to local caviar processors and then tried to cover it up. Yep. If you if you watched the, the sturgeon spearing episodes of the Fur Hat Ice Tour, you, you might remember the interview that Yanni did with, with Mr. Koenig. When we were putting that episode together, I, I talked with him a lot, like I, I'm not yeah. going to say we're buddies, but I definitely got to know him and he really helped kind of shape that story and helped me understand, sure. helped all of us understand the sturgeon fishery. So, so Koenig is, or I should say was responsible for overseeing one of the largest, healthiest and best managed sturgeon populations in North America, the Lake Winnebago system. The story of this fishery and the community tied to the Lake Sturgeon around there, it just, it captivated everybody involved, right? And that, that's why we yeah. did two of our episodes there. We just, yeah. we, we had to cover that. It was so good. And I don't want to get too repetitive for folks who already know, but I feel like this needs some backstory. Lake sturgeon, like all sturgeon, were pretty well wiped out by the turn of the 20th century. And in most places, they just haven't come back. 
In 19 of the 20 states where lake sturgeon once had viable populations, they remain either threatened or endangered. Lake Winnebago in Wisconsin is an outlier. It is the epicenter for sturgeon recovery. This is the success story that the rest of the country and other parts of the world are hoping they can emulate. And some of that can be attributed to the culture of sturgeon spearing, which would seem weird to some people, but those of us who work here in Honey and Ailey understand the the relationship between sport and conservation. People around Winnebago really love spearing sturgeon. They they really enjoy sitting over these giant holes, cutting the ice, holding six-foot-long tridents and waiting for massive fish to swim past them. (laughs) Back in the late 1970s, a sturgeon spearer named Bill Casper noticed that there just weren't very many fish around. Yeah. And he figured that other spearers might be seeing the same thing. So he drove to all the bars around Lake Winnebago and tacked up these handmade flyers asking people to come to a meeting and, and talk about it. To his shock, over 300 people showed up. Hmm. And the conservation group Sturgeon for Tomorrow was born. And that group, like, to me, that represents exactly what we mean when we talk about degenerate anglers. Yeah. Like, going to a bar, tacking oh, up yeah. flyers, and starting a conservation organization is exactly what I mean. Because that group has now grown into the largest citizen advocacy group for sturgeon in the world. They have partnered with management agencies and biologists from all over the U.S. and all the way to Europe. They were instrumental in jumpstarting and helping to fund sturgeon hatchery programs. They pioneered the Sturgeon Guard, which is like a bunch of volunteers who line the banks of the Wolf River every year to protect spawning sturgeon from poachers or people who just want to mess with them. Like They they literally stand guard over these fish. And so often, fish and wildlife recovery efforts result in conflict between management agencies and, and, and local residents. But in this case, spears and anglers have been able to work in concert with the Wisconsin DNR, and the results have been phenomenal. Here's Koenig. This population's had a chance with the protections that have been in place for the last few decades that we're starting to see what these fish can actually do. We've got more fish than we've probably had in recent decades, uh, maybe even dating back to the late 1800s, and we've got more big fish than we maybe ever have had. All that's to say, Lake Winnebago sturgeon are a rare and unequivocal success story in modern fisheries conservation. They're in such good shape that the the Wisconsin DNR can confidently open up a spearing season every year and tens of thousands of people buy tags. Yeah. Sturgeon biologists set annual quota and the DNR operates registration stations at all the major lake access points so that they can closely monitor fish harvest. As soon as that quota is met, which doesn't happen every year, the season closes immediately. Right? Yeah. They're on it. So yeah. techs and biologists collect samples and data from each fish harvested, like length, weight, sex, stomach contents, and sexual maturity, which provide critical information for continuing to monitor and manage the fish. So this is a very complex and really well-organized event that gets tens of thousands of people fired up about lake sturgeon and also helps the DNR collect all kinds of useful data. Mm-hmm. But the 2021 spearing season, which opened last Saturday, began with, with a, a kind of a dark cloud over it. Koenig, the biologist who has successfully overseen the Winnebago sturgeon season since 2012, has been placed on administrative leave. He's also facing up to $10,000 in fines and up to nine months in jail if convicted. Mm. And he's not alone. Several other pillars of the sturgeon culture around Lake Winnebago are also facing possible charges. So 
What happened? Wisconsin DNR has compiled evidence suggesting that Koenig and other staff have been supplying Roe to local caviar processors for years. Mm-hmm. When a, a successful spear brought a sexually mature female to a registration station, the biologists and techs would sometimes collect the eggs as part of an ongoing fertility study. Koenig told investigators that he delivered eggs to specific caviar processors at the Spearer's request after completing his analysis. Koenig also told investigators he handed out sheets at surgeon registration stations that listed certain processors' names and contact info, so Spears knew where to deliver eggs if they wanted them processed into caviar. Now, if that were just the complete truth, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Sure, yeah. But Koenig and others have been under investigation since 2017, and the criminal complaint alleges more nefarious goings-on, shall we say. Right. Investigators claim that DNR staff stored sturgeon eggs at registration stations with the sole intent of giving them to processors. They even found one cooler containing eggs marked with the name of a local processor. The complaint does not, however, cite any known sales of caviar or make any claims that anyone from DNR or elsewhere received payments for eggs. The problem is that there are numerous reports indicating that Koenig and other DNR employees received jars of caviar as thanks. As soon as Koenig and others accepted gifts, those sturgeon eggs were no longer given away. They were bartered. And bartering with wildlife products is unequivocally against the law, and, and to be honest, for really good reason. Koenig is being charged with obstruction because it appears he tried to cover up his involvement. The statements he made to investigators did not match some of the evidence they collected. Additionally, he performed a factory reset on his DNR-issued cell phone after he became aware of the investigation. Oh, yeah. Three other residents were charged with unlawful sale of game in connection to this case, including Victor and Mary Schneider. Again, if you watch the Fur Hat Ice Tour, you're probably going to recognize Mary Schneider's name. She's the 87-year-old decoy carver and, and just matriarch of surgeon culture around Fond du Lac. I like the paint. I like the, I like the carved wood. Do, you know, I've been doing it for years. Mary told investigators that she and her husband process eggs dropped off by successful spears in exchange for half the finished product. There's no evidence that the Schneiders sold any of the caviar. They either ate it or gave it away to friends and family. But under the law, that's still a form of barter. I, I do not condone bartering or selling wildlife in any form. Doing so cants towards a, a slippery slope that can lead to the commodification of, of wild fish and animals. But man, I got to admit, this story... The story really leaves me conflicted. Yep. Several retired state employees said on the record that it wasn't unusual for DNR staff to share the prepared caviar they got from the processors at meetings or local taverns as a way of encouraging people to maximize the use of the fish they harvested. They considered the samples educational. And I can I can imagine that that the folks working those those sturgeon spearing season. Yeah. Like they see a lot of fish and a lot of fish eggs go to waste every year. Yeah. And I'm yep. I can imagine how frustrating that's gotta be. And so I can understand why they would want to encourage more spears to eat eggs by showing them, like, hey, this stuff can be made into a delicacy. It can be really good. Don't waste it. I also know how in a small town people often operate on a barter system 
right? Like they, they, they help each other out and they return favors in whatever ways they can. Ah, but I, I just, man, I think this case is a very sad and very high profile reminder to all of us that we just, we can't use wildlife or fish meat or wild game as currency, even in a situation where it seems completely innocent and innocuous. Like if somebody's helped me, I don't know, sand and repaint my deck, the law says I can't thank them with walleye fillets and deer steaks for my freezer. And I'm, I'm sure that there are some people out there that are saying that it's crazy and this is a total overreach of enforcement, but the commodification of wildlife has had disastrous outcomes in the past. We've seen what happens. So we have these really strict laws for a reason. And, and for those of you out here who want to know more about this, uh, head on over to themediator.com and check out Pat Durkin's article titled Wisconsin's Top Sturgeon Biologist Charge in Caviar Probe. I, I totally agree with the slippery slope here, but just to, to maybe try and have a better understanding just or to clarify here. So like what you're talking about with somebody sanding your deck and you thanking them with walleye fillets or, or deer meat from your freezer. Yep. That you're not supposed to do because now technically that has become a form of payment. Basically, Correct. now that's barter. If those same two dudes came over and helped you with nothing, and as a gift, you were like, hey, man, you want to take some walleye home or some venison home, that's okay. It is. Yes, you can gift. It's different state by state, but sometimes you have to have paperwork associated with it to say, like, this has been gifted. But often after it's processed, you don't have to do that. If it were a whole animal that I had harvested under my tag and I wanted to gift it to somebody, there'd be a bunch of paperwork you have to do to make it legal. But you can gift things. They just cannot become a form of currency. That's right. where things become a problem. You cannot begin to use any wildlife products as currency of any sort by law. And again, look, I get why it's it seems potentially crazy. How could you be upset at, at this 87-year-old woman who yeah. is making caviar for somebody and, you know, she gets half of it that she gives to her friends and family. That is that is something I, I, I very much can identify with and understand that sense of frustration. But I also think it's important to recognize that we have these game laws for a reason, and they're really strict for a reason. Of course. I genuinely hope and I expect that the Schneiders get let off. Like, I will be pretty upset if they actually get prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Sure. I really... I. I it's not my call. It's not my place. But if anyone were to ask me, I'd say, I mean, come on. <laughs> you made your point. Everybody understands. Like, let's let's not actually prosecute sure. these these old people. Sure. Koenig is a different story. Yeah. Like, I think he probably did have good intentions. I really do. But it's the lying and the cover up instead of just coming clean. And that for me, that's where he crossed the line. That's what bites a lot of people on a lot of things, man. If you had just been open about it, you might not be in the, in the same in the same pickle. And, and you know, to, to that end, so both of us, I mean, we, we got lit up since this dropped. Like, you know, oh, wasn't that the guy in Fair Hat? Wasn't that, you know, yeah. you guys worked with him? And sort of a, a unrelated to the central story, too, um, you know, this happens from time to time. It, it is it has happened to me. There there have been several times over the years where you shoot a video or write an article or or quote somebody, um, you know, and you do the the best you can to to vet people, and you certainly don't know everything about it. But then it comes out later, like ah, dude got you know hit for poaching crappies, and like you crappie fished with him three years ago. It happens on on occasion, you know. Like it's it's. 
it's terrible, but um, I, I've had it happen with dudes who, you know, had these incredible careers on the up and up and then, you know, something happens and then it comes back on you like, oh, you were fishing with that shithead. It's like, yeah, man, but you you don't know that. You know what I mean? Like this this stuff just unfortunately happens time to time. And, you know, there's also the, you can't throw out or discount the excellent work that exactly. this, this person has done previously in his career. That doesn't exactly. mean that you condone right. the aspects right. that were illegal or, or unethical, but you, you can't just discount and throw away the great work that he has done to help manage the sturgeon population and maintain the relationships of the community with the surgeon. Like the, the dude deserves the credit for what he did. And, and he's getting, he's certainly getting the punishment for the things he did wrong as well. Yeah, you're right. I mean, as shady as this is, he, he made some wrong choices in this, but you're right. You can't let this wipe away and, and define every single thing that this guy has done in his career. No, you know? that, I, I don't, I don't think so. And, and I think ultimately the real loser in all of this is going to end up being the, the sturgeon population, right? I think, I think yes. that you've lost the person who was heading that up. You've lost some of the infrastructure that's worked to, to, to do this really well for the past nine years. And I'm sure that Wisconsin DNR is going to get it back together and get things up and running. It's all going to be fine. But, you know, losing the folks who've been intimately involved in this program and done well with it for almost a decade is certainly going to be a, a hiccup. Uh, I don't think, yeah. I don't think this, I don't think this has a, a happy ending. And I, I just hope that, you know, I think, I think if there's a takeaway for me, it's, it's to remember like that, how easy it is to run a foul when it comes to gifting or bartering with, with fish and wildlife. And that we just, we all have to be careful with that. Yeah. And there's a reason why those laws exist. There's no reason to be pissed off about it. Just, just be careful what you do. It's yeah. And it's the simplest things that uh, can get you in a lot of trouble. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day 
into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. All right, so that one we, that we we had to get that one out of the way. I got one more short one here, although it all it all does kind of tie together. We've eaten Asian carp and caviar now, two very controversial dishes, yeah. uh, apparently. <laughs> so, well, let's let's we'll try and move away to something a little more safe and familiar. Um, we because we all love a nice golden crispy fried piece of of walleye, right? Especially it is, it, it is the American fish. It's the American fish, which is what makes this interesting. Um, we especially love that out of a frigid lake in the middle of winter. It's good eats. Uh, anyway, Minnesota-based Blue Water Farms, which is an aquaculture company, believes they're going to be the first to successfully raise mass quantities of eater-sized walleyes indoors. Walleye farming. Now, indoors. Indoors. So now here's the thing, right? I, could, I We could spend another hour digging into the backstory of walleye farming and commercial walleye fishing, but there's just a, a couple key bullet points here that will help paint a better picture of why this is a big deal. Uh, there is no commercial walleye fishing in the U.S. anymore, right? There, but there is in Canada. Right. So while you don't see walleye for sale in the states as 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 frequently as you did, you know, many many years ago, uh, if you do see it at a fish fry joint in a restaurant on the Great Lakes or whatever, it was probably harvested in Canada and then with, sold. With back a couple to exceptions, I gotta I gotta because otherwise you're gonna get hammered. There are okay, a couple tribal ahead. there are a couple tribal nations who still do okay. commercial fish for walleye in the U.S. But okay. Mostly it's it's gone, but I know I, I can see with our listeners that you were going to fair. No, you were I appreciate hear about it. That. I appreciate it. There's a lot of research in this. Okay. And I was not great in school. So the other bullet point here, we know walleyes can successfully be raised in uh, hatcheries. Many states do this for stocking purposes. However, they're, they're typically released into the wild around 20 centimeters because once they reach that length, they're sort of off of plankton and microinvertebrates and they're eating each other. So basically, walleyes can't really be raised to market size, or one of the difficulties, uh, you know, to a size you'd get nice fillets off of, because they're just too damn mean and cannibalistic. That's one of been that's been one of the biggest hangups in walleye farming, uh, and that's just one of many problems that've been in, encountered over the years. Now, in doing some research, there have been some advances. Right there, there was one dude who figured it out in um, floating pens. But, you know, he was he was supplying local establishments, but his walleye were so much more expensive than the ones being imported from Canada that it just didn't make any sense. He kind of got knocked out of the market. Uh, anyway, according to this story in the Duluth News Tribune, Blue Water Farms thinks they've got it figured out. And to be clear, this walleye rearing facility doesn't exist yet. They're still in the funding phase and grants phase, planning phase, but it is chugging along. And the company has actually hired a gent named Gregory Fisher, who is, was kind of the top dog at the aquaculture facility at the uh, University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. And according to this story, he has essentially figured out how to rear market-sized walleyes in an indoor recirculating aquaculture system. 
his team has, has proven that it could be done with broodstock. And I get the impression that there's some trade secret here. Like there's a lot of details about the specifics of how he's figured that out, left out of the story. However, the thing to keep in mind is proving it's feasible is not the same as scaling it up to a point where it's economical. Right. right. So to make it economical, you've got to produce loads and loads of walleye so that you make the cost of goods to restaurants and markets comparable to buying, uh, you know, imported wild caught walleye or wherever else you get it. Uh, and Blue Water is confident that that they'll get there, but it's really yet to be seen. And I think one of the, the interesting things about this is, you know, you called it America's fish. It's easy to forget how many people have never had delicious walleye because in a lot of cases, if you're not an angler catching your own, it's not something that you that you get your hands on very easily. Um, but, but so many anglers target them and you and I tend to run with fishy people. We're fishy people listening now that you sort of forget that. And it's very similar to striped bass on the East coast. It's not easy to find uh, legally harvested, you know, saltwater, pure strain striper on a menu or in a fish market. So many people have never tasted that, but because I've fished for them my whole life, this it's, it's, it's not weird. And I'd be curious to see if walleye anglers think if this happens, if blue water can achieve this, um, if the fish is as good, because it's, 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 you know, common, the common non-angling consumer won't really know the difference, but even here you can buy what's labeled as striped bass in a fish market, but it's, it's sneaky wordplay because it's hybrid farm raised striper guarantee side by side with the real deal. It's not as good, but very raised fish is never goes. the same. It exactly. just isn't. Exactly. And this whole operation, if you're unfamiliar with aquaculture, it's, it's a circulating system, so they'll be growing walleyes to market size, but also year-round growing lettuce and strawberries and all kinds of other things with, with the wastewater that filters through and grows vegetables. Um, it, could, it could be pretty revolutionary if they can get it done, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'd say cautiously optimistic with the limited information I have. Um, I don't, this is not a, a, a useful comment, but... You're in Minnesota. Why would you name yourselves Blue Water? <laughs> like that just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know. I don't know of any Blue Water in Minnesota. But anyway, maybe it just I, it sounds good if you're in the fish farming game. Blue Water. Well, yeah, and we'll we'll uh, time will time will tell if it works. But um, you know, if you think about it, while there's still commercial fishing on the Canadian side of like the Great Lakes and things like that, I mean, the, the fact that it's not really happening uh, to on a grand scale on, on our side anymore really speaks to why we have such yeah. incredible walleye yep. fisheries in the Great Lakes. So there's plenty out there to be caught for you to take home and cook up. But um, if we were commercially fishing for them to get the amount that we needed to supply restaurants and things, you know, the walleye fishing wouldn't be nearly as good on this side. So this does have value in terms of sustainable fisheries and uh, maybe there'll be a lot more walleyes down the road in fish markets. We shall see. Uh, you are definitely still eligible for a win for your re- reporting. Phil still has to pick somebody. And, and I think after this, this round of news, I could certainly use a stiff drink to wash all this info down. So we'll hear from Phil, and then we'll do a little That's My Bar. Miles, you fell on the caviar grenade this week so that Joe Cermelli could be crowned the winner, and I'm sure he appreciates it. <laughs> This whole Asian carp rebranding thing is all very amusing to me. Like it's Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club or Olivia Newton-John in Greece. The carp will take off its glasses and let its hair down and will realize that it was hot the whole time. But as far as a rebranding goes, this feels less like Ziggy Stardust and more like Chris Gaines. People say you stink, you Garth Brooks fish you. 
but I see you. And you know what? I love you just the way you are. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Okay, we've got a dandy of a That's My Bar submission for you guys, courtesy of Brad Shucha. I hope I said that right. And Brad, let me tell you what, man. I love when a part of what makes a bar great is a character at that bar. Like, I love the mm-hmm. cheersy aspect of this entry. And today, we are going to... Leona, Wisconsin. I, the Wisconsin people are probably going to tell me I said that wrong too. But yep. give me a break. It's going to happen. Right? It's going to happen. Uh, we're going. We're going there to Johnny's Resort on the shore of Wabacon Lake. I'm sure I said that wrong too. Just send me a note. It's fine. Anyway, Brad writes. Opened in 1947 by John Senior, and still run today by his son Johnny Muskie Ashenbrenner. Johnny's Resort stands in a category all by itself when it comes to fishing bars. You can pop into the resort in the morning, rent a boat with a full tank of gas for only $50, and head out for a full day of muskie fishing on some of the best water Northeast Wisconsin has to offer. When your day is done, you're going to want to stop in for what is easily the best and only frozen pizza on the lake. And be sure to get your name up on the wall of honor if you are successful in catching a muskie. Johnny keeps a record of all muskies over 32 inches caught in a year. That is rad. But I do, I just, I just need to stop for one second. I just got to just comment and say, in my East Side world, the words best and frozen do not belong in the same sentence when discussing pizza. Mm-hmm. Like even the dives here, they, they make their own. Sometimes it sucks, but they make their own. Um, but I look, I do understand the frozen bar pie is such a Midwest thing. And even me, like the, the pizza snot that I am, will admit that if I had to classify the finest frozen pizzas I've ever had, the, the finest on the market, they would be Hedgies, which is from Minnesota, and Jack's, which is, in fact, from Wisconsin. I, I appreciate that clarification and that you were willing to go there. But I got to say, the whole Northeast pizza thing is is overrated. It is. Maybe. So I. All right. 30 years ago, right? Maybe maybe 30 years ago when the rest of the country just had Pizza Hut and Domino's, there was a legitimate argument that, you know, mm-hmm. oh, only get good pizza in the Northeast. But now you can get good pizza pretty much anywhere. And mm-hmm. and I say this having eaten at both Grimaldi's and Juliana's in Brooklyn. They're both very good, but are they the end-all, be-all of pizza? I, no, I do not think so. Hmm. I mean, that's fine. You're trying to get me to engage here, but I, I find that sometimes... <laughs> It's just easier to let people that don't know what they're talking about just have their moment. Like, we don't have the time. If I wanted to take a shot, though, I'd say, oh, Grimaldi's and Juliana's. Someone watches a lot of that Food Paradise show (laughs) and is a tourist. (laughs) The real Brooklyn people are not at either of those places. They're at the real joint. Anyway, enough about that. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm wading into water that's deeper than my waders right now. Uh, Back to Brad. Who, who really is yes. the focus of this. He, it's your he moment, went on. Brad, not ours. He, yeah, we're, we're being jerks. <laughs> Brad says in his email, be sure to visit with Johnny. Ask him to tell you uh, some tales of his youth growing up on the lake. Ask to see his dad's old musky gun. How else <laughs> would you dispatch a musky before bringing it in the boat? Or maybe ask to see the bucktails Johnny tied with his own beard hair. And certainly spend some time looking out over the collection of lures and mounts from a different era of musky fishing. Above all else, you must, must celebrate must. a successful day musky fishing or drown a shitty one with the bar's signature drink, the Kraut Bomb. 
the kraut bomb. Yeah, and that's that's not racist. They're, it's not racist. You'll no, hear no, one no, in a second. No, 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 no. We are talking sauerkraut. Um, so ready for this? Because here's how you make it, right? Brad says, in a bomb cup, you know, the plastic cups with a shot glass in the middle surrounded by a second larger cup, fill the shot glass with Jaeger, then fill the outside with, and this next part is very important, he says, warm Frank's sauerkraut juice opened with a rusty can opener. He says, Johnny himself poured me one to celebrate my first fly rod, Muskie, and I can say from the experience, they are just as delicious as they sound. Mm. And I guess, Brad, if I stuck my first fly rod, Muskie, there, and it was a good one, like like over 40, not a little tweezer, I, I'd slam that, but uh, it really sounds awful. Like, it really it sounds terrible. Plus, I'm going to just go ahead and say my Jaeger days are kind of over, and my SoCo days are even further behind me i think than my my jaeger days smart um smart choices i don't know i don't know man like the kraut juice itself that doesn't turn me off like i could see adding maybe a, a, a spritz of that to a bloody or a caesar but kraut juice and jaeger in my head that's like fish sauce on starburst or something like that yeah that 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 sounds pretty <laughs> terrible and i'm gonna i'm gonna agree it's <laughs> it's not the kraut juice it's it's the jaeger um yeah. but Though the, the drink sounds awful, the bar does not. Uh, if, no. If I got a drink, if I if I am absolutely forced to drink a round of kraut bombs to get Johnny started telling musky stories, that that is one bomb I'll fall on. Agreed. I'll, I'll yes. throw myself on that one. And you know, beard bucktails, musky guns, vintage mounts. Come on, I'm in. I'm I'm freaking in on all that. Me too. We're also, there together. I I checked out Johnny's website, and uh, it's uh it's Spartan. <laughs> at best uh, and it, it doesn't appear to have been updated since 2011 but it does seem to confirm the, the legitimacy of this this magical place so brad is not just putting us on with some elaborate fantasy mm-hmm. that's good to hear do not play with our emotions like that but if you have a magical place that serves liquor uh you'd like to hear called out on the show much like brad please write down a compelling story and send it to us at bent at the I, I loved that one. It left me wanting on some details because I want to know more about the musky gun. Oh, yeah. I mean, was this was it a 22? I, I have questions. <laughs> there are lingering questions. So do I, man. I, I know. Yeah, exactly. Was it a pistol? A shotgun? Be, I, I don't know, man. In the, in the old school shark fishing scene, at least out here, mm-hmm. most guys did not rely on a pistol, you know, because you had to be too accurate and too much could go wrong, like shooting a hole in the boat. So... The old heads around here, they often went with the, with the single shot 410. Step into the alley with a single shot 410. The road goes off and the party never ends. The hell was that? That was my fault. That was my fault. I did not authorize the sticking <laughs> in of that. What was that? That was, my friends, I hope you noticed, that was Robert O'Keefe. And I had to get one more song reference in this episode. I just, it was, we were on a roll. Anyway, uh, it sounds like, it sounds like back to the bar. Johnny's is as much a museum as it is actually a bar or resort. And they might even have one particular classic lure hanging on the wall there that's been on my mind lately. In this week's end of the line, I'm taking a deep dive into a lure that somehow escaped both Joe and me for most of our lives despite it being influential, groundbreaking, and catching lots of big bass. So so ride along with me as I give props to the devil. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. 
I know Joe covered a classic propeller bait just a few weeks ago when he talked about getting all pukey in the Amazon pulling wood choppers for peacocks, but but I feel like I need to revisit this genre. The main reason comes from listener Ryan Bromberger, who runs the website Access the Wild and recently sent us a care package that included a couple vintage lures from his great-grandfather's tackle box. Now, I don't actually know what compelled Ryan to send such family riches to a couple degenerates like us, but I am deeply grateful and humbled. One of the lures that Ryan sent along is a long, cylindrical, wooden hard bait with propellers in the fore and the aft, superficially similar to the wood chopper Joe described, as well as a whole bunch of other prop baits that have been sold over the years. But as I have come to learn, this one's different. This lure has captivated me ever since it arrived at my house, and I've spent way too much time digging into the backstory. To be totally honest, I'd never heard of this lure, and neither had Joe. At first glance, I I just thought it was one of many short-lived baits from the late 20th century, something produced for a couple years that never took off. But I was wrong. It's called a devil's horse, spelled D-E-V-E-L, for reasons I'll explain in a minute. And it was manufactured by the Smithwick Lure Company. Smithwick is probably best known for their rogue jerkbaits, which Joe covered in an early episode of the show. But though the rogue may be the bait that is best known, it wasn't the lure that launched the company or even their most groundbreaking design. That was the devil's horse. Jack K. Smithwick was an office supplies salesman in post-World War II Shreveport, Louisiana, which might sound like a bland dead-end job, but it gave Smithwick access to the heads of some of the largest companies in the South. In the early 1940s, he started carving lures out of broom handles, much to the irritation of his wife, supposedly, who started hiding her brooms. In 1946, Smithwick designed and fished the first prototypes of what would later become the devil's horse. A couple years later, once he knew he was onto something, he started giving out sample lures to his biggest clients. At that time, just about every serious businessman in the South fished for bass. Pretty soon, those clients were calling him for more than just office supplies. They wanted lures and were willing to pay for them. In 1949, he quit the office supplies business, bought a lathe from Sears, hired some help, and started making lures full-time from his home. Even after going in full-time and producing 30,000 devil's horses in the first year, demand vastly outstripped his production capacity, which gave the lures an even greater appeal. For the first decade, the baits were something of a, a regional secret, popular in Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, and Florida. And at that time, they were branded with the word devil. Like I said, misspelled with two E's, Most sources claim that misspelling to have been intentional, a marketing decision made due to concern that buyers wouldn't purchase a lure with the word devil on it during those more pious times. But in an interview with the writer, Michael Bacon, Smithwick's son, Jack Jr. claimed, hell, dad just couldn't spell. Either way, in 1963, the bait was officially renamed the devil's horse with an I just as the Smithwick brand began to gain national traction. By then, they had a whole line of Devil's Horse-style stickbait offshoots in different sizes, weights, and body shapes. Throughout the 60s, outdoor writers penned tales of riding the Devil's Horse and catching bass all over the country. In 1969, Smithwick released the Rogue Jerkbait, and that seems to have been the turning point when the Devil's Horse began to fade in the background. 
A couple years later, Smithwick started making rubber worms, spinners, weights, and crankbaits. And somewhere in this period, the company seems to have stopped riding the horse that brought them. Though the Devil's Horse never went out of production, it faded into the background, at least in certain parts of the country, which is probably why Joe and I, a couple lifelong anglers who came of age in the 80s and 90s in the Northeast and West, had never heard of this bait. But that's not the end of the story. Just because Joe and I weren't hip to the horse doesn't mean that other people stopped fishing them or that they stopped catching fish. Solid chance that any southern bass heads listening to this are hollering at their phones or radios right now and calling me a complete moron because across those same states where the horse first gained popularity, it never really fell out of fashion. It has quietly remained a staple topwater lure for big bass in shallow water, even among some of the top pros. Unlike the woodchopper and other prop baits, the horse supposedly shines brightest when fished slowly in close proximity to weedy cover. Instead of retrieving it with aggressive rips and jerks, like Joe described with the woodchopper, or burning it on the top like a buzzbait, folks in the know fish the horse as a finesse lure, casting it tight to cover, letting it sit for several seconds, and working it painfully slow. Short twitches, followed by long pauses. And here's where I feel like the story of the horse really comes full circle. If you're deep in the bass fishing scene, You've probably heard about spy baiting or, or spin baiting, a technical finesse presentation for highly pressured finicky bass developed in Japan in the mid-2000s. It became the hot new thing in the hardcore bass world about a decade ago. Spy baits are long cylindrical baitfish-shaped lures with propellers in the front and the aft. Sound familiar? Yeah, just like the devil's horse. But hold up, spy baits sink. And the devil's horse is known as a topwater. Except, the original horse was actually a subsurface lure, and Smithwick continued to produce various sinking models for many years after. Unfortunately, spy baiting wasn't a thing back then. And because the topwater models outsold the subsurface versions, the original design eventually fell out of production. The only horses made today are floaters. And that's kind of a shame. Smithwick was actually designing and fishing the hottest new lure for the smartest, most technical bass. He just did it about 60 years too early. So that's all the time we have this week. And what you've just experienced was the true story. The true story. Of two complete fish bums. Picked to live in a podcast. And have their bullshit taped. To find out what happens. When a salty girl from the vineyard, a washed up bike messenger, and a guy whose dad used to throw lead at musky heads, stop being polite. And start getting real serious about reminding you to please keep those comments, questions, concerns, bar nominations, sale bin items, awkward photos, and all that, John, coming to bent at the mediator.com. We love, love hearing from all of you. And don't forget, we've always got eyes on those degenerate angler and bent podcast hashtags. Make us laugh, cry, or barf with your posts, and uh, we might send a sticker pack at you. Yeah, and if you're struggling to figure out what to say to us when you email or post, just ask yourself.
You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.